This episode is made possible by the Napa Valley Wine Expert Course. The Napa Valley Wine Expert Course is the only professional certification that focuses solely on the wines and wine regions of Napa Valley. If you work with or have a love of wines of the Napa Valley, the Napa Valley Wine Expert Course is your opportunity to gain a deeper understanding of one of the world's top wine regions and an industry-recognized certification. Master the wine and wine regions of the Napa Valley today. More information under NapaValleyWineAcademy.com. That is NapaValleyWineAcademy.com. And I remember asking my father, so what, what can I do if I don't understand what they ask me? And he was like, oh, you're young, pretty, just smile. From Napa Valley Wine Academy, it's the stories behind wine, a show about the people, places, and stories that influence the world of wine. I'm Christian Ogenfus, and on today's show, we speak to Angela Makalong, the globetrotting ambassador for her family winery estate located in the Bergance DOC of Northern Italy. Angela shares with us what it's like to be a woman in the male-dominated wine business and about her family's rich history and how they transformed the ancient and indigenous Vespaiola and Torcolato grape varieties into some of the most revered sweet wines in Italy. Joining me in the studio as co-host is... Hi, I'm Geraldine Brastrom from Italian Wine Central. And we have the honor of sitting down today with uh, Angela, and Angela comes all the way from Italy. Angela, tell us your, your full name and what do you do? So, hi, I'm Angela Maculan, and I'm kind of the face, the traveling face of my family's winery, which is in Breganze, a small town in Veneto, in Italy. Well, it's great, it's great to have you here today. It's my pleasure being here. So... Be really interested to hear about your family winery. Tell us a little bit, if you can, uh, give us a snapshot uh, of how it started and where you are, where you are today. So the winery, as I said, it's in Braganza. It's a small DOC area right in the heart of Veneto, northeast of Italy, about one hour from Venice and off from Verona. It's a very small and barely known <laughs> DOC area. Um, the winery is there, right in the center of the town. Uh, my great-grandfather, back in the early 1900s, used to have a little osteria, so a little restaurant, and he was making wine for the osteria. During World War II, in 1943, in Italy, there was a law that was mandatory to provide, provide anything you could to the army that they were stationed in the area. And my grandfather, Giovanni, started making some wine f- with his father's tools for the army. After the war, 1947, he decided to build the winery and make wine the main business of the family. At that time, he did not have vineyards, so he was just purchasing the fruits and vinifying them and making wine. And he was also a distributor for other wineries. Then my father, Fausto, was the only son, so he was literally sent to Conegliano, in Conegliano, where the Prosecco is made. There's one of the oldest uh, winemaking high school in Italy. And after he graduated as a winemaker... In 1973, he took over from his father, and he decided he wanted to be different from before, so he wanted to make higher quality wines. And he started from there, and step by step, we arrived to what we are today with about 50 hectares, so that's about 130 acres of vineyards. We still buy about 30% of the grapes that we vinify from farmers of the area that have been working with us for the last 30 years, so they know exactly what kind of grapes we want. Total production is about 55,000 cases a year, mostly red wine, about 50%, 30% white, and 20% uh, sweet wines, dessert wines. And our main market is still Italy with about 65% of the production and 35 exported in 30 different countries. Okay, okay. So this has been a family business now for three three generations. Yep. Um, and and are you the only daughter? You have siblings? I have a sister. Okay. I have a sister, Maria Vittoria. Uh, she's 80 years younger than me. And she graduated in 2007 as a winemaker. So since I'm the traveling face, she's uh, the winemaker and vineyard manager, uh, working side by side with our father. Great. And, and what is it like working in a family business with with so much history? And there's there's got to be intrigue. And uh, is it a good division of uh, of labor? We found the right balance, probably, because I could never do what my sister does, and probably she could never do what I do, because we are completely different, like day and night, uh, as as person, as characters. Um, but working in a family business is not always easy, because 
our dad is both our dad and our boss. <laughs> so it's not always easy to find the right, the right balance between these two faces of the everyday life. But again, we, I think we've found a good balance over the years. And did you always know you'd be involved in the family business? Did you? No. No? <laughs> I had no choices. <laughs> I, when I was 18, I finished high school. I wanted to become a medicine doctor and save the world. Uh, of course, my father was not super happy about this. So we found the agreement and I started studying agriculture. And the agreement was that I was going to take the first year with all the generic subjects like maths, physics, chemistry. And if I like it, I will... I would have stayed, otherwise I could have gone for medicine. Two years, uh, so two weeks after I started university, my father had a um, business trip planned uh, to the United States and Canada. And he, I mean, I went with him. So the first stop was New York, then Chicago, San Francisco. He rented a house in Napa for the weekend with the jacuzzi on the balcony. I still remember that. <laughs> then LA, Banff in Alberta, Toronto and Montreal. And that was a pretty easy catch. Mm -hmm. So the year after, um, 1997, uh, Weinbow, our importer, organized every year a big tasting in New York in September. They call it Witness Harvest. It's a, their main tasting and portfolio tasting, so it's pretty important being there. And my father said, I'm busy with the harvest. I can't go. So you go. So he literally put me on a plane and I'm here 20 years after. <laughs> what, what a great story. And, and your, your sister, was it always? My sister, as I said, completely different. Yeah. She has always known that she wanted to be, uh, to have the same job as our father, our dad. So she wanted, always wanted to be a winemaker. And um, working with your dad is, is, uh, obviously, someone who who, who revolutionized uh, the winery, mm -hmm. and I can imagine he identifies himself very closely with with the winery. Um, what's that like? Is 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 it hard to for him to let go, and and for the younger generation to uh, to take over, or is there a good balance at at this point? Wow, um, I think that at this point, we there's a good balance. It was not really easy at the very beginning. Uh, I went through, me personally, went through difficult moments because I didn't feel like I was promoting one of my product, even if my name is on the bottle, because I was not making it. Um, then for a few months or maybe a year, I was so angry with my father because I was not feeling enough prepared to do this. My English was not as good as today. My... I knew nothing about wine so I had to learn not 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 on wine in general but even on our own wines so um, I was I could say angry with him because again I've it was just uh, like throwing me into the pool and learn how to swim so it didn't really teach me anything just sitting together and you should do this 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 he never did that um but at the same time, I really have to thank him because in 2004, he decided to stop traveling because when you travel two people on the same markets, people don't know uh, who's your um, person is. I mean, do I have to talk to Angela or do I have to talk to Fausto for these kind of things? So he just stopped traveling. So since 2004, I'm the only really traveling face of the winery. So... And he didn't come at Vinitaly for three years in a row. So people were just asking, is Fausto okay? Is he doing great? Yes, he's doing great. He's just not showing up here because, because he wanted that people was, were talking to me in terms of business. So That's, really have to thank him. It was not easy. It took, me, it took about 15 years to get to this point, but <laughs> we finally got there. <laughs> So how did you, being thrown in, into, the, into the deep end of the pool, how did you, how did you teach yourself? How did you motivate and, and conquer this, this what could be uh, almost an insurmountable task of, of learning the family business and learning, learning the, the, uh, the complicated landscape of, America, uh, of the export market? So um, I still remember my very first trip in 97. I was at the Schiphol Airport in Amsterdam and uh, waiting for my connection flight. And I was reading the brochure of my wines, trying to learn something, at least the blends. 
And I remember asking my father, so what, what can I do if I don't understand what they ask me? And he was like, oh, you're young, pretty, just smile. So <laughs> starting from that, I'm getting old, <laughs> older at least. <laughs> it, I mean, I felt that I couldn't just smile and, and not saying anything. Um, so from the winery and so from the wine point of view, I, I tried to taste everything I could. Um, everything I can, always, both at the winery and also around the world when I have the, ch the chance to taste something that I don't get at home, try to memorize everything, um, talk to other people, talk to our cellar master to know how things go, uh, if I have time, which is not that often, unfortunately, I try to work at the winery, maybe half a day, I don't know, outside pruning or during the harvest, to learn really, I mean, how things are made, Uh, and on the other side, um, being starting traveling so young was also a very positive thing because I was kind of mascot for everybody. So everybody has always been very nice and kind, and I always ask questions. So how things are going, how this works, I don't understand, and stuff like that. And people have always explained everything to me. So I'm, this is basically how I learned. That's great. And you, and you deal with a product that people want to try and, and, and enjoy. So that must make it easier, too. Yes. And I have to say that uh, my winemakers, so my father and my sister, are pretty good. So the wines are good. So that makes my life way easier. <laughs> so what's it like being you, – you travel a lot. How, how, many, how many days out of the year do you travel? Uh, it depends, but about between 100 and 150 days a year. Okay, so a couple. Yeah. What, what's that like? What's that like from a, from a personal perspective? Is it, is it hard? Or how do you re-energize? How do you get excited about being gone from, from a beautiful area of Italy that, um, that many days? Let's say that I'm energized because I know that home is home and I will be home soon. Uh, at the same time, being traveling for so many years, I have friends all over the world. Uh, and I'm always excited to see all-time friends um, because as, as Geraldine we've met many years ago and I can still consider her a friend even if we haven't seen for, I mean, for a few years now but um, and it's always a new challenge I mean every trip is even if I go I might go to the same places or I go to the same cities or the same markets it's always a new challenge every time I go uh, even if I have the same wine sometimes I get just bored to see repeat myself for like 10, 15 times a day, <laughs> always keep smiling. Uh, but um, now I feel that that is my wine, even if I don't make it, uh, because my name is on the bottle. And now I feel part of the process of the family of the winery, um, which it wasn't like this 15 years ago when I started. But um, yeah, when it's not always easy to travel. But again, I, I still love it. I still enjoy what I do. I still love going to new places where I've never been before. I still have the curiosity to sightseeing and to maybe schedule the weekend in a new place <laughs> to visit. But sometimes it's just, I mean, it's a pretty lonely job because you spend a lot of time in airplanes, uh, in airport waiting lounges, hotel and jet lags are terrible because you wake up in the middle of the night. <laughs> But yes, I still still enjoy it. So what have, what have you seen the biggest, what's the biggest difference in um, in the time that you've started to travel? What have you seen? Any trends, any, any changes in the wine business um, on the export market or in the wine business, in your wine business, your family wine business? Wow, that's a very big question. Um, there... Probably in 20 years, there have been a lot of big changes. Uh, what I've seen is, um, let's talk about the, the export markets first. Uh, I've seen a big change, um, not only in our importer that went from, a, let's say, call it family kind of style to a more bigger and kind of corporate importer. So I've seen many people going through, I mean, Over the years, many people changed, um, and that's one point. But generally speaking, the market has changed a lot. The quality of the Italian restaurants in general really increased in the last 20 years. 
um, starting from the, I don't know, second or third generation Italians, uh, Americans running the restaurant to my age or even younger people coming to the U.S. to, I mean, to open a restaurant mm -hmm. with a more um, true, I would say, um, way of preparing the food or more traditional. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, restaurants are my main customers. Uh, the knowledge in general of the final consumer is really higher. Uh, they're more curious. They're not stuck just in, I don't know, don't want, I hate to say names, but like Chianti or just one single, they're more open and they are more, uh, they are willing to try different. They feel more adventurous, also tasting an unknown, uh, one of the thousands of the <laughs> unknown gra grapes that we have in Italy. And um, at the same time, competition has increased a lot because 20 years ago, and I cannot even imagine what was almost 40 years ago when my father started exporting the wine to the U.S., um, many, many wineries started making higher quality wines. So, of course, the competition has increased a lot. So this is definitely something that I've seen changing in the last 20 years. In our winery... Um, we always try to do our best. Um, we've saw, um, I saw um, maybe some ups and downs in some wines, like the dessert wines uh, when it went a little down and then they're coming back again. Um, but yes, I mean, we try to stay stable with, with our style uh, because of course, I mean, having a member of the family winemaker really makes that pretty stable so probably yes that and we try to adapt our winery and our wines to the market i would say so um, we mainly for the reds we mainly have french charging grapes but they've been grown in the northeast of italy for over 150 years so they kind of became traditional for us mm -hmm. um so we try to make wine a little more modern let's say a little more fruity, but still with definitely a Northeast Italian taste and style. So let's, let's maybe transition and talk a little bit about the, the wines. We've, mm -hmm. We had the opportunity to try them um, uh, a little bit earlier. And most people, when they think of Italy, they don't think of dessert, dessert wines, mm -hmm. right? Um, and when they, uh, when they do think of Italy, they tend to think of mostly red wines and, and some of the regions that, that you've mentioned. Um, tell us about um, your wines and, and why dessert wine is, I think you said 35% of? 20. 20% of, uh, of your total production. Seems like a hard, hard um, segment of the, uh, of the wine world to, to become really good at, mm -hmm. right? Uh, tell us how you see it. Okay, so I could probably start saying uh, that dessert wines sweet wines or dessert wines, how you prefer to call it, um, are a big part of the Italian culture. Um, I could probably say that traditionally, almost every DOC or every winemaking area, wine producing area of Italy has at least one traditional made dessert wines. Uh, this goes back in the past when people didn't have money. People were, pre I mean, hundreds of years ago, when people were really poor and uh, white sugar was really, really expensive and only for rich people. And uh, so to have something sweet, uh, some kind of fruit, some source of sugar during the winter, people would dry everything like apple, pears and grape. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the, the winter with the leftover grapes, raisins, people would make the, the wine because they didn't want to waste anything. So this is probably why sweet wines are so popular and you will find them all over Italy. Um, the other thing is that sweetness is the most enjoyable of the four tastes. So, so it's the, this, it's the first thing that the baby when it's born, I mean, the milk is sweet. So of course we grow up with this sweet, uh, sweet tooth. Um, going, I mean, getting to my winery, um, as you said, 20% of our total production is dessert wines. We make four different of them. And we are pretty known for them, mainly for Torcolato, which is a 
goes back to more than 250 years of history because the Vespaiola grape, the grape that we use to make this wine, was mentioned in a book uh, written in 1754 as um, dessert wine made in Breganze. And when my father took over from my grandfather, he wanted something unique and something to be known for. Um, and I mean, the Vespaiola grape, it's a very unique grape because you will find it only in our Diosiaria. So no other place in the world, at least that I know, uh, where you will find this grape. And something traditional, 250 years of history. So my father took this wine that has always been made in the families and in, I mean, in every single family, traditionally, and he took this oxidized, syrupy, sweet, almost undrinkable wine, and he fixed all the different phases of the process, so the harvest, drying of the grapes, fermentation, and aging, and he came up with this modern-style torcolato, which, again, was unique because of the grape variety and traditional because of the history. So, And he used this wine to, make, to, to knock too many doors and to have them open for him, so... Well, Angela was kind enough to uh, bring some of those wines with her today, and we tasted them before the podcast, um, and we're going to talk about those in a second, but I just want to say, knowing your father, I know that he is a sink or swim kind of a guy, and throwing you into the deep end, I think you've done a great job. <laughs> Thank so you. So congratulations, because I do remember when you first started working in the market, and uh um, and I know how hard it was for you. So uh, even though it is lonely, you're doing a great job. Thank you very much. Uh, and, nice. <laughs> and as I said, Angela uh, brought several of uh, uh, of her wines with her today. So I- I'd like for you to talk about the differences because it was a, a fantastic progression, um, you know, a, of telling us about the varieties that are are indigenous to the area and how nobody else is really growing them or using them for dessert wines outside uh, of your region. But also, uh, let's just start from the beginning. You brought four wines today, three white wines, and one red sweet wine. So this is, you know, again, a, a sort of uh, a interesting twist. So the first wine that you brought was, was called Dindarello. So tell us about that and then take us through the progression of the differences between them. Okay, so the first one we tasted is, was Dindarello. Dindarello is the name of the street where the very first vineyard that we used to make this wine was in the um, mid-80s. And the wine is made with 100% of Moscato Fior d'Arancio, which is the orange blossom Moscato. It's part of the Moscato Giallo family. The grapes are picked on time, so it's not a late harvest. None of them are late harvest. They're all passito. Uh, so we dry the grapes um, at the winery. <clears throat> for Dindarello, we dry the grapes for about a month, a month and a half, um, until we reach a certain kind of uh, raisiness. And then after that, the wine is squeezed. I mean, the grapes are squeezed, and then the fermentation goes on in stainless steel tanks, and then it's just aged uh, for a few months in stainless steel tanks because we like to keep this uh, very aromatic because, of course, of the grape variety, and light and fresh and refreshing, really easy drinking, and also really easy to be paired with many desserts. Yeah, our comment was that through all the wines, this uh, this beautiful streak of acidity that balances out the the, the residual sugar that, that is left in the wines, but also um, what a great sort of value for the price that the, that the uh, Dindarello represents. So I think it's a great introduction for people who maybe are a little reluctant to try or think they're, they shouldn't try a dessert wine like we were discussing. Um, and so that retails for about 22 around the U.S., yeah, in, Correct. In, in the market. So the next one you alluded to earlier was Torcalato. That's mm-hmm. got a great story, the name Torcalato. What does that mean, and, and, and how is that wine made? So as I said, Torcalato goes back to 250 years of history, uh, made with this indigenous grape called Vespaiola. Vespa in Italian are the wasps. And this grape is called Vespaiola because it's sweet and the wasps are attracted to the sweetness of the grape. And it's also the last of the white grapes that we harvest in our area at the same time as Merlot. So that's usually around the third week of September. And uh, so the skin of the white grapes is thinner than the skin of the red. So it's easier for the wasps, the bees and the bugs in general to go to a white grape uh, and, and bite it and to get the juice versus going to a red grapes, which... The, the skin is, is a little thicker. So this is the origin the origin of the name Vespaiola. Um, again, another pasito, so not late harvest, picked uh, in September and dried until January, so for four months. 
and go having so much history behind of course we have there's a traditional way of drying the grapes which is not using the straw mats like our neighborhood do in in Verona but using a rope um, so you create a kind of a circle with the rope and then you start from the bottom and you put one bunch you twist the rope twice and then you put another bunch and you twist again the rope and another bunch and you get a kind of braid like they do in the south with the tomatoes or garlic and people in the past used to hang the these great uh, this um grape braids <laughs> from the ceiling uh for two reasons first of all if you use the rope if you use straw mats you have you need to have some storage space during the summer even if you're not using the straw mats to dry the grapes but if you use the rope, you can take the whole braid and put it into the torchio, the old wood press machine, and throw everything away. So you don't have you need you don't need to have storage space. The second reason is that, as I said at the very beginning, uh, when we started talking about dessert wines, is that people didn't have sugar. They don't have. I mean, they couldn't afford the white sugar. So to have fruit, and and some something sweet during the winter, they would dry everything. So. If you hang the grapes from the ceiling, you can still put other stuff on the floor to dry, like apple, pears, nuts, and mm. grain, and stuff like this. So this was a kind of better use of the space. Um, so we still hang about 10, 15 of the grapes uh, that we dry, but it's really, really labor intense. So um, it's less romantic, but the reality is that we the majority of the grape is dried in plastic crates with holes on the four sides and on the bottom, we put just one layer of grapes so it doesn't get too pressed, squeezed. And then we let them dry for four months. We have a machine to control humidity and temperature, but we try to use the machine just for the first four or five days, one week max, to dry the stems because they're really, really rich of water and we don't want too much humidity. And then we have big fans. After the first week, we have big fans. We open the windows and use the outside air. So this is why the drying process is very slow, slow and natural. Then we get to January, the grape lost about 70% of the weight, so the yield is very, very low. Sugar level is up to 35%. We squeeze the raisins. The fermentation uh, lasts about a month, a month and a half. Naturally stops when you get to a certain balance between sugar left and uh, alcohol, of course. And then after that, the wine is aged for one year in part new, but use the French barriques. Yeah, I think it's important uh, for people who are venturing into uh, dessert wines that are made from dried grapes to understand that once you begin to dry, you lose uh, that you lose so much quantity. Like you said, you have no seventy percent. So um, that's why the prices tend to to be a little bit um, higher on the dried grape wines. But you've started with less. So, um, but what you end up with is a beautiful concentrated uh, wine. And as I said, we tasted it at the beginning. Uh, before we we did the interview, and there are, there are hints of hazelnut and ca- very faint hints of caramel, dried fruit, but again, this beautiful balance between acidity and sugar, and the wines never taste oversweet. I think that's the most important thing. Yeah, the acidity it's the main characteristic of the Vespaiola grape. So it's a, it's a natural acidity that it's there, and it's perfect to balance the residual sugar, as you as you mentioned, Jeremy. Yeah. So um, the next wine uh, has uh, uh, just as interesting a name, Accini Nobili, but it actually means something. Um, if you know Italian, you can figure <laughs> out what it means. So tell us about that and and how that's sort of the next step after the Torcolato. So Accini in Italian means berries, and Nobili means noble. So the name Accini Nobili means noble berries. And this one is made with Botrati's grape. Uh, so basically, my father, uh, he was never satisfied of, I mean, he always needed and he still needs to know more. So in 1983, he went to Chateau d'Iquem in Sauternes during the harvest. And uh, he saw that they were harvesting the rotten berries and uh, just berry by berry uh, with, with their hands uh, with some scissors. Going back home, he realized that he had the same problem, the same mold <laughs> on his grapes. And in the previous year, he was selecting the rotten grapes and throw them away. So that year, he said, hmm, maybe I'll do something different. So he selected the berries with the Botrates and he made another wine. So Accini Nobili. So this is how everything started because he saw that in Ikem. 
1983 was technically the first vintage. Um, with it was at that time the name was not actually Nobili, it was Torcolato Riserva. It was only one barrel made. It was all sold out to one single restaurant in Milano, uh, three Michelin star restaurant uh, the, from Gualtiero Marchesi. The next vintage was 1985 and under the name of Accini Nobili. And so we started from there. We don't make this wine every year uh, we, because it really depends on the weather condition from the picking of the Vespaiola grape. So from the end of September all the way through January because... For example, this past winter was very dry, so we didn't get botrytis developing on the grapes. But again, if we make enough, if we get enough botrytis to make at least two thousand bottles of that wine, we will before pressing the grape for torcolato, we will make a handpick selection of the berries with with botrytis um, to make Accini Nobili. And after the fermentation, the wine is it for two years in hundred percent new French oak. So basically, it's Vespaiola dried and with botrytis in. That's the that's an amazing wine. It's a, I don't know. I no, I shouldn't say that because yes, you can say it. It is an amazing wine because it was it was definitely the showstopper. And we were you were kind enough to bring the 2003. So we were tasting it today with I think just the right amount of age mm-hmm. on it, uh, where not only those flavors came together, but the wood was very integrated. Um, again. These dessert wines that tend to have way too much concentration, this is not the case with your wines. Everything seems to be in balance. And knowing your father and knowing how uh, Maria Vittoria is probably following, you know, has the same mindset, mm-hmm. the wines are just, you know, they're just impeccable. And I can see how that strategy of really wanting to be modern but also respect those traditions has really worked out well for you. Thank you. And, and, uh, Speaking of, of, of modern and traditions and, and, and that sort of thing, the, the fourth wine that we tasted w- was also very fascinating because it was made from, it, it, it was a red dried grape wine made from the combination of an international variety that everyone knows very well mm-hmm. um, and something that probably not many people have heard of. So tell us about Maduro. So Maduro is the latest addition to our sweet wines. Uh, the first vintage was 2004. We've been working on this project for a few years before we were really satisfied with the quality of this product. Um, the name Madoro, M-A stands for Maculan, which is our last name, D-O, Dolce, so sweet, R-O, Rosso, red, so Maculan, sweet, red. And um, we basically, my father basically put together the two things that he likes the most, so dessert wines and Cabernet Sauvignon. So he decided to make um, dessert wines out of Cabernet Sauvignon but not not just 100% Cabernet because drying Cabernet would and making a, just a straight wine out of some dried Cabernet Sauvignon would be just too much tannins, too much intense. So we used uh, traditional red grapes that you it's, it's in uh, all around the hills of Veneto. It's called Marzemino. That is a very traditional grape because it was uh, it's in the um, Mozart uh, Mozart used this this grape in his Don Giovanni. When the words, I mean, Mozart wrote the music, of course, but the words were written by a guy living in, in the Conegliano area where the Prosecco is made. So he mentioned the Merzamino as a wine. So in the 1700s, this grape was there. Um, so we use uh, about 50% of um, Cabernet Sauvignon and 50% of Marzamino. We dry the grapes for about a month, a month and a half. And then after the fermentation in stainless steel tanks, the wine is aged for four months in use the French oak. So you get a little bit of oak, but it's definitely not overwhelming. The Marzamino as um, it has a lot of fruit, uh, big berries, and very low tannins. So that's perfect because concentrated that, you get a huge amount of red, dark fruits. And drying the Cabernet, you get, of course, all the fruits that are typical of the Cabernet, but also the tannins. So they will give a little more structure and, uh, and, and the tannins also will balance the residual sugar that's in that wine. Well, it was uh, it was fantastic, and it was it, it was as we all commented. It was it, it had the elements of a dried grape wine, but it still mm-hmm. had beautiful freshness to it. Mm-hmm. Um, everything that we tasted today was in three seven five size. So the Dindarello was twenty two, the Torcolato forty five, Accini Nobili, which again remember is not made in every vintage, was sixty five, and the Maduro was twenty nine, which. The Dindarello and the Maduro for, for, for my money, for the everyday, you know, um, were, were the great values. What, what, so we're calling them dessert wines. 
Um, they all had a little bit of residual sugar. You mentioned that some people use dindarello as, a, as an aperitivo, mm-hmm. which I've seen as well. Um, but what would you, I've had some, your father's had some very interesting pairings with some of these wines over the years. So um, um, in addition to dessert, which I think what everyone thinks of, what, what else can you do? What else can you pair with these, uh, with these wines? Um, of course, cheese. Uh, and you can go from light cheese, maybe with dindarello, to something more sharp with torcolato or accininobili, and maybe some super tasty uh, blue cheese as well, also with Madoro. Um, with Dindarello, it's the pairing is really, really easy because being so light and fresh and refreshing, also something with, with fruit, like fruit tart or something like this would be. Um, torcolato, that's, the, the pairing there is a little more tricky because being so concentrated and so rich in the flavors, I would go for cheese for sure. Um, or the, in terms of dessert, I would see something like an apple strudel or tartaten, something not too sweet. But with, I mean, so the apple strudel, you find the raisins, the, the cooked apple, uh, the, 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 the crust, uh, and then a little bit of um, cinnamon or a little bit of spicy that goes with the, with the match with the, um, with the barrel aging. Uh, Madoro, chocolate, <laughs> dark chocolate for <laughs> sure, or... or I don't know. I don't know here, but in Italy we have this tortino with uh, with the soft heart of mm. chocolate mm. and with like a berry coolie or oh. something like that. Something with blueberries uh, that would be also very good with uh, with Madoro. Um, Madoro is very funny also with game. I was going to say, you know, yes. in in the south of Spain, right, with their with their fortified wines, they often take all of their for, uh, sherries and and whatnot through. Uh, through an entire meal. Um, and you don't see that really done around the world except yeah. in, in Spanish restaurants. But when you go there, you you drink everything with every element of the meal. Yeah. And I could see some of these with savory dishes, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Madoro uh, is probably the the one that I would see more with, uh, with some gay meat. Uh, referring also to Scandinavia, they use a lot of their berries to make sauce uh, for, for game. Um of course, foie gras with torcolato and accininobili. That would be the, the only pairing that I would go for accininobili because that one, I don't really, I don't think that it really needs a pairing. Just right. good company. And I'm sharing a bottle with someone that l- you love or, <laughs> I mean, someone that appreciate this kind of wine. Yeah, fantastic, fantastic. I'd love to hear a little bit more about the the region where your your family winery is located. So, um, as as you mentioned, it's it's a DOC that maybe many listeners haven't heard of mm-hmm. uh, before. Tell us a little bit about the DOC if you can, mm-hmm. and maybe some of the um, grape varieties that we would typically find in in that area. Okay, so the name of the of the DOC is Breganze. It's a pretty small DOC. There are only 800 hectares of vineyards under the DOC and only 17 wineries. Uh, the biggest winery is the Coop that covers about 600 hectares with about 400 members of the Coop. And we are the second largest, as I said, with about 50 hectares of vineyards. The other wineries are way smaller. Some of them only have the family that works at the winery, so they don't have other people working with them. Um, and some of them, they don't even have distribution outside the area. So if you want their wines, you really have to drive with your car at the winery, buy the wine, put it in your truck, and take it back home. So that's the situation where we operate. Um, even if it's pretty small, it's one of the oldest DOC of Veneto because it was founded in 1968. And since the beginning, the DOC white and the DOC red uh, has always been the same. So the DOC white is uh, with a minimum of 85% of Thai. Thai is the other name of the Friulano. And of course, 15% of other white grapes. And the DOC red is 85% of Merlot. So when you come and visit me in Braganza, you will mainly find French origin grapes. It's because we have Cabernet Sauvignon, as we mentioned before. We have Merlot. We have a little bit of Cabernet Franc. We have Pinot Noir. Also, of course, we have some marzamino, and we make also a dry red out of the marzamino. Uh, but these, the, the everyday wine will be a Cabernet blend, for sure. 
For the whites, uh, we have, of course, Thai, Pinot Bianco, Pinot Grigio, Sauvignon, Chardonnay, the Moscato, and what I usually call the, the Queen of Breganza, which is the Vespaiola. Um, talking about the reds, because that's probably most interesting, but also for the whites, um, French charging grapes have been grown in that part of Italy, not just in our DOC, but all over Veneto and Friuli for over 150 years. Because when, when people say Veneto, everybody thinks to Amarone, and so Valpolicella and Ripasso, and Prosecco. But if you look at the variety, grape variety map of the northeast of Italy, if you don't consider Valpolicella, which is geographically speaking a pretty small area compared to the rest of the region, all around Veneto and Friuli, Friuli you will mainly find Cabernet blends with different percentages because in the central part of Veneto, it's mostly Cabernet Sauvignon. Across the two regions, it's mostly Merlot. And if you go to Friuli, it's mostly Cabernet Franc, but you will find these three grape varieties spread out all over uh, this area. Of course, there are other, there are some local grapes that can be Raboso, Refosco, uh, Gruaio, Marzamino, Schiopettino, here, every here and there, but the everyday wine will be Camerlo blend. They were there for sure in 1855 in Vicenza, which is the main city where the, the name of the province where we are in the main city of the area. There was a kind of farmer's fair. So the producer of the area brought their products to the exhibition and they printed the catalog of the fair. There were about 100 white grapes and more than 120 different red grapes at that exhibition in 1855. Mm -hmm. Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot and Pinot Noir with different names, though, because Cabernet Sauvignon, it's Cabernet Sauvignon. Pinot Noir is Borgogna Nero, so red Burgundy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and Merlot is Bordeaux Nero, so, but not Bordeaux like it's correctly spelled, but B-O-R-D-O, so how we pronounce it. <laughs> and that's Merlot. So these three grapes are in that list. So they were there for sure in 1855. They probably were brought by Napoleon when he conquered the north of Italy in the late 1700s, early 1800s, or by the rich and noble families that used to live in Veneto uh, going to France for vacationing and they probably brought their vines back with them in order to have the same wine. And over the years, uh, people just kept replanting them. So after Phylloxera, after World War I, people just kept replanting the French Argent grapes. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is that we don't have to forget that Veneto and Friuli, so after, right after Napoleon... The area was traded to Austria, so we were the southern part of the Austrian Empire. So probably the Austrian Empire used us as their red wine country. So I don't know, we can guess that they wanted to have the same wine as French um, people. So this is like these can be some reasons why we have Camerlot blend. But if you go to any single agriturismo or any single traditional trattoria of the area and ask for the house wine, that will be a Cabernet blend. Interesting, interesting. And what what is the what's the terroir like? What is the soil? Um, heavier heavier soils. It's volcanic soil. Volcanic soils. Yeah, it's mainly volcanic soil. So our DOC uh, can be divided into two areas. Uh, talking about soil, because Breganze it's right at the end of the Pianura Padana, so the flat part that it's on the north of Italy and on the hills right at the footstep of the mountains. So the half of the DOC it's on the flat part and that's gravel because we are between two rivers the Brenta which is also the east the, the river Brenta is also the east border of our DOC and the Astico river which is right outside of the center of Breganze so in the past they form the area and it's white gravel the hillside part it's all, all volcanic soil with different composition of course but all volcanic soil so interesting that um we, we find Bordelais grapes, right, in, mm -hmm. in an area that has gravel. So it seems like mm -hmm. almost a, a serendipity there to, <laughs> to combine those again outside of, uh, outside of Bordeaux. Yeah, so Breganze could be part of the big B. I mean, Bordeaux, Burgundy, Brunello, Breganze. <laughs> of course. So is it safe to say your family winery is, is the quality, innovative leader in, in this DOC? You said that, <laughs> but yes, <laughs> it's true. I can vouch for that. Yeah. Um, so, so what's it like? What is it? Um, well, let, let me back up. W what's the hardest job part of your job? I mean, you, you seem to enjoy what you do immensely. You're very good at it and a very passionate. What's hard about it? 
you have beautiful wines, you have a family winery, you get to travel a lot. There's got to be something that, that you say, God, this is, mm, if I can solve this one, it, my life would be a little bit easier. Wow. Um, wow, that's a very hard question. <laughs> um, sometimes I would like to have a little more time for myself. That's it. Yeah. But uh, I said it's a very, it's a pretty lonely job. Um, so that means that I probably have a lot of time with myself, which is not always good. <laughs> but um, I sometimes I would just like to have a little more me time at home just to do what I like to do and just to relax and to also have a little more time to go and visit friends. Uh, I mean, I have friends all over the world. I have a lot of, of course, friends in the wine business over the years, uh, many colleagues, and we all all see each other around the world. So I've never seen many of my friends' wineries. So this is something that I would like to to do. I've never been to Burgundy, even if it's only eight-hour drive from where I live. So, yeah, that's this is something that I would like. But at the same time, when I'm home, when I'm not traveling, I like just to be home. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so my vacation time is usually being home. Yeah. What, what five tips would you give to someone who wants to learn more about uh, Italian wines? What, what, what do you think, what are th five things someone could do to explore Italian wines better or understand Italian wines better? Wow, that's another, you have a lot of difficult <laughs> questions. <laughs> five tips to discover Italian wines. Um, or what are the five things we need to know about Italian wines as a, as a consumer? So we have probably thousands of wine grapes in Italy. Um, probably the best way to discover them is, of course, to come to Italy. But having so many different grape varieties and so many different areas, you will probably need, I don't know, maybe a year or at least six months to go around and travel. Uh, the other thing is that, but I mean, let's start from, I don't know, going to a wine shop that has a nice wine, I mean, Italian wine section, and let it be guided by the the guy, the owner, the sommelier, or, I mean, the person in charge of the Italian wine section. Just not be stick in the famous, I mean, don't want any friends of mine get mad of me, but, I mean, not just get <laughs> stick in this, the famous names that I won't say, of course, <laughs> but we all know, but also try to discover some unknown areas uh, without being scared. The other thing is that, I mean, traveling to Italy, we um, we have so many different grape varieties, and they're so some of them are really local, and they perfectly match with the traditional food. So this is another thing. I mean, maybe buying a regional Italian regional cooking book. I don't know if they exist. Probably yes. And try to match. I mean, play with the food and with the wine. This is something that can also help to get more into the Italian wine culture. Um, well, these were just two of them, two of five. That's difficult. Um, I don't know. Go to a travel agency and buy a ticket to Italy. Just one-way <laughs> ticket. <laughs> no, Italian wineries are getting better and better in welcoming people yeah. and tourists. So we're getting better in, in the, I mean, receiving people and let them discover the area. Great, great. One one last difficult question, maybe, mm. and then then um, I'll give it back over to to Geraldine. But what's it like being a, a woman in the wine business? Right when we think of the wine business, um, oftentimes erroneously we think of it as a man's business. Mm -hmm. Right? Um, it it appears that Italy has a lot of very strong, important women in in the wine business, and other countries don't. What's what's it like being an Italian woman? in the wine business? Um, when I started 20 years ago, it was more, absolutely, definitely more man world. Um, again, I was probably one of the youngest uh, new generation, let's call this, um, to start traveling. Now I see that there are more and more uh, women start traveling or being involved in the wine, in the wine business. Probably because my father's generation had daughters, not only son. So 
being Italian and being in the wine business, it's something that you cannot stay out of. I mean, you you born in a family that has a winery. The wine world is beautiful and so passionate. And you see, I mean, I'm always amazed to see how the vine sleeps. And then in one year, you can drink the product every year. Um, so it's really, really, what can I say? Um, it's impossible to stay out, to not to get involved into. Um, so my generation, yes, I mean, my father's generation had a lot of daughters, probably more than son. So this is why we there are more and more women involved in this business. It's not always easy, um, especially being like a 20. I was, by the way, I was underage on my first <laughs> business trip to New York, pouring wine. Uh, so it was not easy at the time because everybody was really, okay, everybody was really nice, but I didn't feel being enough professional in, in what I was doing. Um, so maybe if I started a little older, that would have been better. I don't know, but um, it's not always easy to be, I don't know how to say in English, credibile. Oh, to have credibility. Yes. So it's not always easy. But today is different. Again, today is different because probably there are more women buyers, uh, women winemaker, uh, chefs as well. So it's getting more open. Still in the winemaking, I still see a little, it, that's part, it's a little more men. The, let's say that the marketing and sales part, it's more open. But still, I don't know if it's because of the Italian tradition that men used to work the land and being the farmers. Mm -hmm. uh, that's probably a little more of um, men, still men. But uh, I have a sister. She's a winemaker. I have a beautiful niece. I also have a beautiful nephew, but the niece is older, so I don't know. <laughs> She's more like me, so she will probably be in charge of sales as well. <laughs> Early an early discussion of depletions, right, Angela? <laughs> um, so, so I guess I would just like to finish up with just a little more about. I'd like to circle back to your region and the foods and the things to see, because as you said, it's a region that it's a section of the region that perhaps okay. people don't know much about, um, because it is in the northern in the northern part. And as you said, we think of uh, um, well, we think of, of of Venice. We know Venice. That's mm -hmm. w whenever anyone asks me, well, where are you going? And if I am going to Verona, let's say, they look at me sort of cross-eyed, <laughs> and then I say, well, you know, it, it's the same it's the same province where Venice is located, and, they, and then they automatically their eyes light up. But, but in fact, as you said, there's lots to see, um, and there's some very interesting cuisine. So I want to ask you about uh, something that I've had uh, at your winery that I think it's the best version of it that I've ever had, the, the, the bacalao. <laughs> 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 and, uh, and everyone that I bring to Veneto, when they taste it, they say, now this is, this is a dish that should be by the sea or, you know, in Portugal or a place like this. So how did this tradition, I know Vicenza is, is, is a heart of, of, of the production and there are, uh, there's a society of, uh, of chefs mm -hmm. who are specialized in this. So how did this come? Do you have the, the story of how this came to be in your region? <laughs> there was this guy called Querini. He was a sailor. So he got lost. He was sailing not not just in Mediterranean, but he went out in the in the ocean and he got lost and he got to Norway to the uh, to the islands of Norway and where they dry the bacala where they dry the stockfish so it's air dried so he got lost there he spent some time there and at one point when he was ready to go back he brought some of this uh, air dried stockfish back home and he was from Vicenza he was from Vicenza yes. okay that goes back to the 1700s I, I've heard bits and pieces of that story and I tried to retell it recently and I got completely <laughs> shot down so I'm glad that you're 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 backing me up on that um, just tell us just a few more of your of your um, regional dishes that we might find you mentioned trattoria and going in and mm -hmm. having the cab Merlot blend what else might we see on a menu? In, in your area? So in Vicenza, for sure, you will find the Baccalala Vicentina, thanks to this lost sailor guy, <laughs> Querini. Uh, basically, Baccalà, as I said, it's... Uh, Baccalà is usually... We, we use the wrong word because Baccalà is the salt dry. 
And we use, instead of that, we use the air-dried um, uh, that's why it's, it's so it's so smooth and velvety yes. and it's not overly yes. salty. Okay, yes. perfect. So being a traditional dish of the area, of course, every family has its own recipe, like everywhere else in the world. So, but the thing is that, so basically you will put this uh, dried fish in water for three days to rehydrate. Then you open the fish, you take all the little bones that could be left inside and then you cut in pieces you prepare a kind of pesto. My grand aunties used to prepare with the parcel, anchovies, garlic, a little bit of butter, and a little bit of Parmesan cheese. Mm-hmm. You put like a, a little bit of, of it inside, and then you close as a sandwich, uh, as a panino, mm. all every single piece. Meanwhile, in a pot, you will prepare a sofrito, a base, mm. with uh, white onions, olive oil, and again, Parmesan cheese. And you will put all the pieces standing still, all the sandwiches standing still. And then you will cover them with half olive oil and half milk. And you will cook it very slowly uh, for four or five hours. Never stir. Just wait. Very, very slowly. And then after four or five hours, basically every single piece will fall apart. And it's really tasty. It's not oversalt because we don't use the salted one. Um, really greasy. And of course, we serve it with polenta, which is another masterpiece. Yeah. This is something really, really typical of our area. Yeah. Definitely. Sounds delicious. I know. And the, w- the Americans are not good at waiting. That's why we don't know how to make something like that. <laughs> or, or not stirring. <laughs> or not stirring. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. Thank you. You need a lot of patience to, to prepare this. <laughs> Sound, sounds like it. Yes. So if we want to find your wines in, in the U.S., probably the best place to go, winebow.com, and use their wine finder to, to yes, locate? Yes, definitely. Winebow has been our importer since '96. Before that, we were with another importer, but we're happy with the Winebow relationship. And so, yes, definitely you can ask them where to find or go with winebow.com. Great, great. Wine finder. And just for the listeners as well, we've talked a lot about your dessert wines, but um, obviously red wines and and... Uh, other white wines, maybe mention a few that we might find in the U.S. as well. Sure. Um, so in the U.S., uh, you can find our Pinot and Toy, which is a blend of 60% of Thai, so this white grape that you will find all over Benetton and Friuli, 25 of Pinot Bianco and 15 of Pinot Grigio. So very li- nice, light, refreshing, crisp. Um, you can also find a 100% unoaked Chardonnay and also a 100% Sauvignon. Also our Rosé. It's called Costa d'Olio, which is the name of the vineyard. It's 100% of Merlot, white vinification of Merlot, really light, very French style. And the reds, um, of course, Cabernet Merlot blends. So Brentino, it's 50 Cab and 50 Merlot, stainless steel fermentation, and then half of the wine aged in French oak for a year and half in stainless steel tanks. Palazzotto, Cabernet Sauvignon, our single vineyard Cab Sauv, one year in oak, half new, half used, and the big boy of the winery, which is Fratta. Fratta, again, is another vineyard area. It's a blend of... The percentages slightly change every year, but it's always, of course, mostly Cabernet Sauvignon. So it's around 70% of Cabernet Sauvignon and 30% of Merlot. There are two single vineyards, vinified separately, aged separately for a year in 100% new French oak and then blended. Your sister's busy. She is super busy. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> this is why she never left the winery. <laughs> and if if um, someone were to show up on the doorstep uh, in Begranze, uh, and Berganze, sorry, mm-hmm. and um, knock on the winery door, are they able to visit? Or do they call ahead and make an appointment? Yeah, that would be much appreciated. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we never say no to anybody, but um, just to get organized. We don't have... We get... We are getting more and more people coming to visit at the winery, but we don't have a specific person in charge of that because we don't get enough people. So we need to get a l- at least 24 hours right. in advance just to get a little more organized uh, with the everyday things going on in the office. But yes, all the, our doors are always open. And it's always great to go through your w- local wine shop as well and or to contact the, the importer to, for some assistance. Yes, of course. Uh, uh, as right. well. Right. Well, it was an... Absolute pleasure to have you uh, here today. Learned so much uh, about a region that I definitely want to know more about, and I encourage 
our listeners to go out and uh, drink more mm -hmm. and uh, learn more about as well. Beautiful dessert wines. Uh, Thank absolutely. you. Um, if you're a dessert wine lover like me, they're not to be missed. <laughs> um, well, I just get for coming, Angela. Thank you very much. It was a great pleasure. I always enjoy and talking about my area, my wines, and to let people know. So thank you very much for this opportunity. Yeah, grazie mille. Thanks for listening to the show. If you want to find out more or listen to previous episodes, you can go to NapaValleyWineAcademy.com. You can also subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts or however you get your podcasts. You can write to us at listen at NapaValleyWineAcademy.com. And if you want to send us a tweet, it's at Napa Wine Academy. I'm Christian Ogenfus, and you've been listening to the stories behind wine from Napa Valley Wine Academy.